Welcome to episode 35 of Tall Poppy. I'm your host, Tathra Strait. Have you ever tried to look at your own eyeballs? That's what trying to see your own worldview can be like. However, my guests today have spent a lot of time creating ways to help us not only understand our own worldview, but also those around us. Kathy Jourdain and Jerry Nagel have created a whole body of work around worldview intelligence as a way to change the outcome by raising the level of worldview intelligence in our society. When we make someone else into an other, there's a good chance we don't understand where they're coming from and what impact their worldview has on their behavior, beliefs, and choices. Central to this discussion is that curiosity and judgment can't coexist. We talk about how a worldview approach invites us to be curious about ourselves and others, and that curiosity is a leadership practice. And it's not all about accepting others' worldviews, nor about trying to change others. We learn the six dimensions of worldview intelligence that they've created to help us become more worldview literate. I'd like to welcome Jerry Nagel and Kathy Jourdain to Tall Poppy. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you for having us. Delighted. So we're going to start with the question, where in the world are you? And if you could just describe your surroundings a little bit, just to give our listeners a visual anchor. Kathy, can we start with you? Sure. I'm in Nova Scotia at, near Halifax. Uh, Nova Scotia, for those who might not know, is on the east coast of Canada and um, we're a small province. We are um, less than a million people in the whole province, and I live near the major city in the province, which is around 250,000 people. And what can you see in where you are? Uh, Well, if I look out the window, it it is getting dark here right now, Um, but the the window that I look out of when I'm on a lot of these calls is to my backyard, which uh, is... Uh, full-blown backyard, natural, a few perennials out there, a few lovely trees out there. And despite the fact that my front door opens on a very busy street in the uh, backyard, it feels like its own its own little private nook just for me. And it's the place where my outdoor office happens on all of the nice days when I have to work. That sounds great. And how about you, Jerry? Where in the world are you? Delighted to be on the call uh, with you, and I am in northwest Minnesota, out in the countryside. The nearest city to me of any consequence is about an hour away. I look out my office window, and I see, you could call my front yard, which is basically uh, being restored to natural prairie, so right now it's full of uh, flowers and grasses, uh, black-eyed Susans and bergamot and other things, and if I look across the gravel road, uh, there's a big cornfield uh, on that out the front. If I was to look out the back, I would be looking at the lake that I live on. Uh, and right now, the sunset will be gorgeous on the lake. Um, and um, on one side of me, the nearest neighbor is uh, probably two soccer fields away or football fields away. And on the other side, probably um, half a kilometer away. Mm-hmm. So I'm fairly and I like it out here very much. That sounds wonderful. So can you tell us a little bit about what worldview intelligence is about and about just a little bit about your work from your perspective? Kathy, can we start with you? Sure. Um, One of the things that we've become aware of is that the word worldview is being used increasingly often 
Uh, I'm seeing it everywhere and um, hearing it on social media or in articles. And we know that most people use the word without creating any understanding of what they mean by the word worldview. And commonly it's used to take a statement that somebody made or an action that they, that they did and say that is their worldview based on one statement. Gotcha. And one of the things that we've become aware of is that everybody has a worldview and it's, uh, it's really the set of lenses through which we see and experience the world. Mm-hmm. And it's different for everybody. Uh, could be different for everybody because worldviews are locally constructed, which means that they're constructed in relation to the communities that we were born into, that we grow up in, that we live in. And they're socially constructed, meaning that they're um, constructed in relationship with other people because people and events and circumstances and books and movies, um, pretty much everything we come into contact with has an influence on our worldview and helps shape it. And so some of the crux of our work is helping people become aware that they have a way of seeing the world. It might be different than the way somebody else sees the world. Um, What is that? What does that look like? And then how do we be in conversation with people who might have very different ways of seeing the world than we do? I really think that this is the kind of thing that we take for granted. Like it's... In, in some ways, I'm thinking, well, duh, of course everyone has a worldview, but I think we make a lot of assumptions about that. So, Jerry, why do you think it's important? Well, um, building on what Kathy said, and, and you just offered, Tathra, um, we think um, with our worldviews and through our worldviews, but rarely about them. Mm. And so we often like to say that our worldview is our starting point when we enter into conversations uh, with someone or we see something around us. Uh, MIT did some research that suggests from the moment we see something to the time we draw a conclusion about is, is 13 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. It's about a blink of an eye. And so that's our worldview at work. Uh, and so um, we're rapidly, very busily interpreting things around us. Uh, but we don't really pause to think, what's that starting point? You know, w- w- what is it that that is influencing how we interpret the world around us. Uh, Related to that, that, that's really important, is some interesting psychological research that says that our worldview and our personal identity are wrapped up in each other, and that when our identity is challenged, in essence our worldview is challenged, we respond as if our mortality is challenged, as if our life is threatened. And so, you know, what when we experience those challenges, you know, where, where did that come from? You know, what, what is being challenged about us? Or when we engage in someone else and we say, oh, you're completely wrong, you know, in your thinking, we're essentially challenging their identity um, and they don't respond well. Where is the source of their response? And so what we really wanted to do was find a way to really, in a structured manner, develop a deeper understanding of that starting point for us or someone else, um, that worldview, that identity of who we see ourselves as. So tell me a little bit about the work that you've done to bring this to the fore. Kathy, what kind of environments have you um, shared this work? Uh, So I want to start by just saying, just like individuals have worldviews, organizations, cultures, social systems also all have worldviews. Mm -hmm. 
And so um, we've been very fortunate to be able to work in a variety of contexts where uh, the, the starting point of our work um, is often around the personal worldviews that people have an experience of, of what that looks like. And then we might move into an organizational um, worldview exploration or social systems or team or culture or um, however that might be. So maybe I'll speak to a couple of the examples and Jerry might speak to um, a couple more. One of the clients that we worked with here in Nova Scotia is the Nova Scotia Barrister Society. And um, the Nova Scotia Barrister Society is changing the way it regulates the profession of law. And this is a very innovative, leading-edge initiative that they have undertaken. They are going from a very um, structured, rigid regulation process to a more flexible process oriented towards the size of a law firm, the nature of a law firm, um, the resources that a law firm might have. And they recognized that if they were going to change the way they regulated the profession, then they also needed to change the way that they talked to each other inside of the organization, the way they talked to law firms and the way that they talked to the public about the work that they were doing. Essentially, they were looking for a shift in their culture. And so they asked us to come in and do some worldview work, both with their staff and with their governing body, um, to introduce the language of worldview and to give them all a um, similar coherent framework from which to think about their work that they're doing. So, Jerry, do you want to add to that or in terms of what kind of environments you're, you're working and helping people become literate in worldview? Sure. Thank you. Um, so just a very quick rundown. Um, did work in a national energy company that wanted to reestablish company values, worked with employees around, you know, the relationship between personal worldview and company worldview around values, worked with a 200, we are working, so some of these are ongoing work, working with a 200,000 member labor union that's rethinking um, its role as a labor union and with its um, a membership. Fantastic. Innovation teams inside a healthcare company with 30,000 employees, uh, work inside foundations, uh, small organizations of a few staff to the couple I just mentioned large. We're in the process of designing a project where uh, a community that is essentially white, uh, you know, 99% white, is lives side by side with a community that's Native American, mm -hmm. and they want to address. Um, the ongoing historical tensions in the communities using a worldview approach um, um, to addressing labor shortages in a community. Um, I mean, the range is, I mean, it's just uh, broad, really, really broad in, in the applications where we've brought the work. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm imagining pretty much anywhere you have human beings, there's going to be issues that are based on the assumptions that we make about how we see the world. Um, so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about some of the problems that you've seen or some of the, the issues that arise as a result of just not really having, like I said, taking for granted that our worldviews are different. What do you think, Kathy? Have you, have, what, what are some of the sort of real nasty problems that you've seen? Or let's call it, maybe we'll call them wicked problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, I'm not, I don't really think about them that way. Because uh, oftentimes we get asked to um, come in and help an organization, sometimes with communication, sometimes with culture change. And so sometimes it's as simple as we have a number of different departments in the organization. 
Um, even within an organization, the different departments will have differing worldviews, and they don't know how to talk to each other or they don't have a common understanding of an issue because they're coming at it from a very different perspective. And so sometimes that's the work is to go in and help people figure out how to have that cross-departmental conversation. Um, sometimes it would be like uh, one of the foundations that we worked with wanted to have a better understanding of the organizations that they grant money to because it, they felt that they didn't really understand 40% of their grant funds go to Native American communities and they felt that staff in the organization didn't really understand the nature of those communities and that they understood it better, then um, they might be able to make their granting process much more uh, effective and have a much better use of, of funds in the course of doing that. I just want to pause you there for a moment. I'm hearing yeah. um, culture on two levels. So kind of workplace culture and, and you know, how we do things around here in an organization, but also culture from an ethnicity perspective. And that, yep. yeah, clearly worldview has, has a very um, big impact on both of those. And, uh, so, so tell me a bit about the interplay there. What, what do you see? Well, one thing I, I, I would add, want to express is that we as, as individuals or organ, and even organizations, I think, don't have just one worldview. Mm. We're multi-beings, we're, we're very rich uh, in, in who we are. So my worldview as a grandfather playing trains on the floor with my grandchildren is very different than my worldview as a professional working in, a, in one particular group or a different particular group mm -hmm. and very different you know, when I'm in relationship you know, in, in a social setting or elsewhere. So the, we like to think of more, more of like an atlas of worldviews than a single worldview. I like that. That's um, so great. I, that's, that, that becomes really important. And yes, the culture, as Kathy said earlier on, the environment, the context that we're raised in, the cultural milieu that we're raised in very much influences our worldview. Uh, and, and in ways that are profound and, but um, subtle. Uh, so a very stark example, and then Kathy may offer another one, is the work we're doing with the white community and the Native American community. Mm -hmm. So Western Europeans um, typically ha have a worldview uh, where the individual takes precedent over the group. Mm. And we and we've done we've done dialogues and cafes and things that make this really pretty explicit. Nat indigenous societies typically have a worldview where the group takes precedent over the individual. Mm. So the, those perspectives can influence someone's personal worldview and personal interactions with the world around them, but they also can then influence how these two groups interact with each other, where one group you know, favors the individual, the other group favors the well-being of the group, and you can imagine the clashes that could emerge you know, culturally and individually if, if one, you know, like a kid that's put in a school system that celebrates individual achievement, and their perspective is, how do we as a group succeed? You, right. you know, I mean, all these things start to show up mm. you know, in, in amazing ways. Yeah, the example that I would add to that is uh, one of a fairly large healthcare organization that we're working with in the Midwest, in the U.S. And um, culture has shown up there in a couple of ways. Um, one is it's an organization that's been growing by merger and acquisition. And um, the culture of the acquiring organization 
is different than the culture of the organizations that it's been acquiring. Mm, I can imagine that's and, pretty common. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And then part of uh, what compounds that is that the communities that the or- that the different um, parts of the organization are located in also has an influence of the on the worldview of each of the um, separate entities. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's and just so, so layered, is- isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is, yep. And this organization is one of the things that they want to do naturally is create some consistency of systems across the whole organization. And then they're running into um, resistance because what they see as a, as a form of creating order is seen as an imposition of control by the other organizations. Mm. And so then part of the exploration is how do they create a consistent system that allows for the flexibility for each of the, the offices or the, each of the hospitals to be tuned into the communities that they're serving. Hmm. So that's one way that it showed up. The other way, and it reflects what you've been saying about assumptions, is that the organization is piloting a new form of patient care, uh, which really puts the, the um, patient at the center of their clinics. Nice. And they have about 200 clinics across the organization, and they piloted with six of the different clinics. And the the clinics, the pilot had been um, as, had started about nine months or so before we came in to do the worldview work with them. But we asked them to map out the social system for each of the clinics. And one of the assumptions was that different clinics made assumptions about their work compared to the work of other. So one of and a more major urban center thought that it dealt with the greatest amount of diversity until it heard from another clinic, which um, is in an area where there are large numbers of newcomer populations, and um, they're dealing with I mean, 56 different languages on a daily basis. Wow. So it really opened their eyes. The other um, thing that we, they discovered, and I always say, once you know it, it's obvious, but until then, it's like a hidden dynamic in the organization, that each of the six clinic teams were there and the overall implementation team was there. And when the six clinic teams mapped out their social system, it did not include the implementation team. And so that left the implementation team wondering what their role was and um, and, and what they were to do next. And we've since uh, become aware that the implementation team doesn't exist anymore um, that those team members have all gone back to other parts of the organization from which they had um, come from and they're now beginning to work with the with the clinic teams differently hmm. wow. um, so I'm aware that I, I cut you off before I wanted to know if there was more that you wanted to say about the organization the granting organization in terms of the organizing that they were funding and wanting to understand them more uh, the um, thing that they discovered in the course of the of the exploration was that not only did they need to understand the community worldview, but we were only working with the grants team, and there's a finance and admin team, and so throughout the course of the exploration, they were going, oh, we need the finance and admin team to go through this as well, mm-hmm. because we're real we don't have a common language across those two departments. So let's talk a little bit about how that happens in terms of increasing worldview literacy. Uh, what do you do? How, how, how do you approach that? Jerry, do you want to take that one? So typically what we've been doing in, uh, is inviting people to experience a one-day exploration, and that's that personal exploration. So they begin to understand what a worldview is, where it came from, its impact on how they interact with other people, 
and um, and what the, the this framework that we use, you know, how they to understand you know, what are the elements or components or dimensions is the word that we use of a worldview, mm-hmm. and, and we and a worldview has six dimensions. And then we invite them into exploring one of the dimensions at, at some depth, uh, and and being in dialogue with with others, and and um, then some of the impact of brain science relative to worldviews, the relationship between worldviews and brain science, mm. how we interact with others, how we respond in this um, mortality we call it amygdala hijack. Yep. Um, and after that first day, you know, you know, there are a lot of folks that that will go. Oh, you know, it's, they're just sort of in a, a bit, a little bit overwhelmed. But, but um, many of the responses, I want to learn more. I need to know more. I want, I want to experience more. I want to explore my worldview in greater depth. Um, I want to explore potentially my organization's worldview, my culture's worldview. Um, but we really start because people resonate at a personal level, and so um, we we begin. Um, we're working with one organization that has 200 staff people in their training. Every staff person is going through the one-day uh, worldview exploration um, at that personal level, um, and so that they're all sharing a common language and sharing, a, you know, this ability to communicate across departments. And then some of the staff will will do deeper dives in cultural worldview and organization and so on. But um, we really begin with the individual and their own self-awareness. We're very conscious, and, and Kathy can speak to this all, to, you know, to create spaces that we like to say are safe enough that you can be in this exploration because it is not uncommon for people to kind of find some things that um, or surface some things that they hadn't really thought about in a long time. I can imagine. Uh, and so we take great care with people because we are inviting them into that arena of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Kathy, do you want to add to that? How do you help people become worldview literate? I think some of it is uh, just in the in the understanding that we all have a worldview. So something as simple as that, most people haven't really thought about a whole lot. And I think Jerry already talked about a lot of the the exercises. And we often invite people into an exploration of history and who and what has influenced their worldview. Mm. And even when people have done a lot of personal reflection already, they find that exercise quite illuminating. And the design of most of our programs is that we share information about worldview or behavioral science or whatever aspect it is. Then we invite people into a personal reflection, and then we invite them into a small group sharing. Mm. And we always say to people, uh, share what you're comfortable sharing. You're not forced to share anything that you don't want to. Um, And uh, whatever you say in your small group conversations is confidential, so you can't go out and share that with anybody else. Whereas a colleague of ours likes to say, the stories are personal and confidential and out into the broader world. And so we find that that good balance um, in that those small group conversations are very powerful for people. They find they will often find points of connection that they didn't know they had. Mm. And we will often say that um, when we find a point of connection, when we start there, then we can explore difference in a very different way. And if we right. start with different amplify the difference mm. and then it's much more to find those connecting points that makes a lot of sense 
Fantastic. Well, I'd, I'd love to dive more into that, but I'm going to bring in the, the leadership element. So, and in many ways, it feels, again, a bit obvious, but I, I've, I'm going to ask the question, how do you see this having implications from a leadership perspective? Might offer, we, we often say that, that our work is in the realm of relational leadership. Mm. So, you know, yes. we're not so much in the realm of hierarchical leadership. So some might say participatory leadership, collaborative leadership, but I, I kind of like, you know, we're in the world of relational leadership. Mm, I like that too. And a key element of that is, well, two key elements. One is know yourself. So if, if, if you're going to, if you're going to work well with other people and work in a relational way and work so that you can all be as innovative and productive and creative as you might want to be and, and whatever you're working on reaches its best potential. Um, you know, the first step is to know yourself. And the second step is to be able to be in good relation with others, mm. you know, to understand others, to have that sort of empathetic uh, or that, you know, that place of empathy. We'll often reference a study that Google did that's, you know, you can get online that said what makes high performance teams. And they found that there were two characteristics. One, everybody got to speak on the team. Mm. And second, there was a high degree of um, of uh, social, what's my word, Kathy? Social, it's, you know, social empathy, you know, social, that, social that you were. Sensitivity. Yeah, social sensitivity. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, those two those two characteristics were powerful in in highly successful teams. Well, social sensitivity is another it, part of that for us is the worldview piece. Is how can I be in exploration to understand someone else's starting point? How did they come to this conversation, this work, and how did I come to it? So that we don't start with difference or amplify that difference so much, but we move into, as Kathy often says, you know, curiosity and judgment can't exist in the same space. And so how do we, how does a worldview approach help us be curious about ourselves and others? Mm. And that's a leadership practice. Absolutely. Curiosity is a leadership practice. Mm, I like that. Yeah, I often um, talk about one of the foundational skills of leadership being self-awareness. And I think there's, you know, there's lots of stuff out there in terms of ways to develop ourselves, but uh, I don't see a lot. There's, there's that saying of, um, you know, trying to look at your own eyeballs, like how you see the world. Um, so, so what are some things that you think our listeners could start to explore in terms of being able to see their own lenses? So one of the things would be to think about the six dimensions of worldview intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll just name them quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is reality, which is what is, what is my day-to-day -day reality? Um, how is my life structured? How does that you know, influence? How does that influence how I see the world? And how does how I see the world influence my day-to-day -day reality? And that could be everything from where you live to where you work to the color of your skin to your socioeconomic um, status to whether you travel or not, um, who you live with. And part of reality is also um, meta-reality, which is what are my belief systems? And um, how does that influence my day-to-day -day reality as well? Uh, the second one is history. So who, who and what has influenced my worldview? Everything from the moment I was born until this current moment. Um, future, which is how do I see the future? Am I excited about it? Do I plan for it? Do I think it needs to be an extension of the past? Do I think it needs to be something different? Uh, 
do I have a sense of agency whether I have an influence on it or not? Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, values, which uh, we commonly know to be what are the values that we hold, and we do have some exploration exercises around that, but the value is also the root of evaluation, and we use our values to evaluate the choices and decisions that we make in our life. Right. Yeah. Then is practices, which is really what are, the, what are the ways that we bring to life all of the dimensions around worldview, and um, that can be everything from some kind of deliberate practice like a mindfulness practice, or it could be as simple as how do we treat people on a regular basis, and do we treat some people differently, or do we treat, or do we treat everybody the same, which none of us do, um, and so what's the basis for how we treat people differently? And then the last one is knowledge which is how do I know what I know and how do I know that uh, my answers to all of these questions or all of these dimensions are true and what sources of knowledge do I trust which is a big question these days Um, and so kind of being in that exploration for yourself is one way to become more worldview aware and then as part of the leadership practice it's if I'm thinking about somebody else especially someone that I might have a challenged relationship with so what might their worldview be? What, what, how, you know, what might their history be, their reality, um, all of those questions? Uh, we do have exercises we ask, where we ask people to reflect on someone else's worldview. And um, so we ask them to think about that. We also ask them to think about what's the outcome that you're looking for in a conversation or a relationship. And that question in itself is one that most people haven't asked themselves. Mm. And then the last part of that is... Now, knowing these things, what are some um, strategies I might use to engage the conversation or the relationship? And oftentimes, people realize that they don't know enough about the other person. They've never thought about how they've come to see the world the way they do. And so then the conversation that they're going to have is a lot different than the one they thought they were going to have. And what's strong in my mind in listening to that is the what you said before about curiosity and judgment not being able to coexist. And that, that feels really important. Um, I want to ask about the, the knowledge piece because the, the question of how you know what you know is, is one that's often in my mind. And mm-hmm. I, I like to talk about integrated intelligence. So a recognition that it's not just our cerebral knowledge um, and brain integration of, of information, but emotional intelligence, our intuitive intelligence, our somatic intelligence, our spiritual intelligence. So many ways that we know things, but we don't give credit to those ways of knowing. We just recognize the the great integrator of our brain um, and think that it's just all rational when really we're not rational human beings. But when we can acknowledge and and draw on those other ways that we know, I think of that as wisdom. What what are your thoughts around around knowledge and wisdom in terms of how that fits into worldview? Well, it fits exactly into worldview. And we'll often, when we talk about how do you know what you know, you know, we might name some of the things that you just named, Tethra, as, as sources of knowledge. And um, and do you believe in them? Do you trust them? Do you see them as sources of knowledge? Mm. You know, another element of that is the science piece. Do you trust science? Do you believe in science? But do you believe in intuition? Do you believe in revelation? Do you believe in, you know, that knowledge can come from a range of sources and not just your head but your heart? Um, and so we'll often reference that as as the range of possibilities for knowledge, and what's and, and, and that resonates really well at a personal level. So it, what's interesting is that well, 
at times when we're working with organizations, we will find just how narrow their source of information is. Mm. You know, they think that they're well informed, and then we begin, we ask them to say, "Well, where where do you get your information?" And it can often be single sourced. It can be you know not very broad or very deep, and um, which is fascinating. At, you know, at, at an organizational level, but um, but what you described fits very well with our work. And I can imagine. Like, and I see this a lot, this very, very narrow way of seeing the world and the implication on decision-making and, again, the assumptions and, and just not knowing very much about the people who are impacted by mm-hmm. the decisions that we make. So, Kathy, did you, did you want to add more to that? Well, I would just say that links back very much to the behavioral science piece and our sense of identity, because once we've made a decision, and I would say that this is true at the individual level, but also at the group level, that once we've made a decision about something, then we just keep looking for information that confirms the decision that we've already made, confirmation bias. And um, we always tell people, think about what links you click on on social media and what news sources you pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for things that are going to uh, confirm what we already believe. And if we go like one step deeper in that, um, we reach motivated reasoning, which is I become very motivated now to um, support the decisions that I've already made or the choices that I've made, the people that I support, you know, my political views. And so now it's not just looking for information or paying attention to information that supports it, but I'm going to go out of my way to rationalize and justify why I believe the way that I do. Mm. Um, One of the exercises that we sometimes get people to do is to think about um, when they've changed their mind and what was it that helped them change their mind, a fact, a belief, an opinion, you know, something else. And uh, people will talk about how long it took them to absorb new information to change their mind. And so then that for us becomes a really good way to point out to people, just think about how long it took you. And we present people with information and expect them to change on a dime. And um, they're not ready to change their mind that quickly. And so we need to cultivate the spaces for exploration because we know that most people will have a change in their view when they've had an experience that supports that. Mm, and I think exploration and reflection are two very important things that we often don't make time for in this very fast-paced world these days. Yeah. Um, so the next question I want to ask you is about what you think is important for us to focus on or to consider when it comes to creating a thriving future for all. Just a small question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I can imagine it's the kind of thing that you would have a fair bit to say about it's the kind of question that is so big that sometimes it's overwhelming to, to even think about it, which then for me takes me right back to, okay, what can we do here and now what's right in front of us? And I think that there are a couple of things for me that really resonate deeply. Um, one is that an invitation into worldview exploration is really an invitation into an exploration of my personal humanity and the humanity of other people that I might engage with. Mm, and so fantastic. many of the things that we've mentioned already, like curiosity and empathy and compassion, we say they work both ways. It's like, how can I bring curiosity to myself and my own reactions? How can I be self-compassionate not to let myself off the hook, but also not to give myself a really hard time about um, things that I've done or things I said in a way I wouldn't have wanted to say them or however that works. 
Um, and how can I be empathetic in terms of really being able to listen to another person to try to understand where they come from? And if I can bring, and, and also, you know, maybe self-empathy, because if we don't do it for ourselves first, it's really hard to create that space to do it with other people. Absolutely. And yeah, so it's, if I can bring my own humanity, I can invite the humanity out in another person. And we'll often say to people, you have to have that conversation without blaming somebody or without only wanting your point of view to be, um, to come across We've had people, and sometimes it shows up in the realm of parents. It's like, well, I just want my parents to understand. And it's like, so what's the reciprocal of that mm. um, as well? So that's, I think that's, for me, um, a lot of how we create a thriving future. I know that there are a number of things around worldview that challenge me or different worldviews that do challenge me. And so I have to keep inviting myself into that space of, trying to stay open and really trying to understand where some of those other views come from. So I have a question about that and I want to get to your answer in, in a moment, Jerry, but, um, and I think I've kind of answered my own, my own question, but when you have a worldview that you're sort of confronted with and you do find that really challenging, I mean, curiosity seems the obvious answer, but is there, is there more to that that you would say? Uh, I think it's a combination of a lot of the things that we've already said, which is the first thing is to check my own response why am I reacting the way that I do? Is it just what I've heard? Is there something deeper there? Mm. And, um, and then the second thing, so it's like, know yourself. Um, the second thing is try to understand where the other person is coming from. Um, if you need to engage a conversation, it's okay to be fierce in it. Like it's not about letting go of your own beliefs necessarily, but it is about not imposing your own beliefs or your own views on somebody else. So how do you ask some really good questions um, to move that conversation into a different place? Because if we can step back and ask a question, we have a greater potential of opening up an exploratory space than if we are charging in just trying to tell that other person that their view is wrong and they need to change the way they think because it doesn't work. Yeah, gotcha. Thank you. Jerry, do you have thoughts on what's important for us to focus on or consider in terms of creating a thriving future? Well, I would build uh, first just a little bit of what Kathy was just saying and, and note the difference between empathy and sympathy. Mm, and so empathy, empathy is the process of trying to understand and sympathy might be a process of agreement. So there are worldviews out there that I am not sympathetic with and I probably will never be sympathetic with. But I could, I could give the energy to try to understand them. And I've run into worldviews that I've found it extremely difficult to understand. So it doesn't mean that I we want to take care here that this is not a process of requiring someone to change their worldview. And it's not a process of requiring someone to, to um, be sympathetic with another worldview. And in fact, there may be worldviews that I find abhorrent to my own personal values and beliefs. But I can try to give some energy at times to try to understand it. You know, there's the famous Thich Nhat Hanh quote when somebody asks him you know, about why aren't you angry about the pirates that burned your village down? And he says, because I don't know why they became pirates. Mm. Um, and so, you know, th there's, a, there's an element here of, of, of that. The, the other piece about this that I, I would also add is to take care not to turn someone that sees the world different than you into the other. Yeah. Because once they become the other, 
then we can push them away. We can dehumanize them. We can make we that otherness, you know, just creates such a barrier between us and whomever we've turned that into. And we do that so regularly, you know, the other person, the yeah, other view, the yeah. other this. And it just dehumanizes everything. And so I the what we're trying to do with this work is is see the humanity in other people, even if I don't agree with them. You know, how did they come to where they are? And I may never want to be, you know, one of the rules of difficult conversations is if the other person is not about any way to change, period, the end, they just want to shout and yell, walk away. You don't have to be in that conversation. You know, but if there's the possibility of learning and openness and curiosity, then how do we do that? How do we do that well? That's a great answer, and, it, and I really appreciate you saying that, in that it's not all about just acceptance and understanding and compassion. It's there are, there are boundaries, and mm-hmm. that we don't have to agree with everybody, but we can still be curious about how we got there. I love Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Please Call Me By My Real Names, and I'll put yeah. the um, link to that in the show notes, but it really helped me understand compassion, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with the pirates. So, and, and the choices that may make in, t- in terms of their actions. So, two final questions. One is, is there a resource that you find yourself referring quite often to others? Perhaps to help understand worldviews or perhaps just in general or maybe in terms of leadership. Well, the obvious one is our Worldview Intelligence website. Um, one of the things that we've been trying to do there is accumulate resources uh, that also uh, help people be, you know, thinking about expanded worldviews. And so there's right. links there to other publications, to videos, some of our own, but also other videos. Um, I'm always on the lookout for examples where people have done a worldview exploration, where they've expanded a conversation in a really challenging situation. So I try to link those resources to the, um, the website as well. Excellent. Thank you. How about you, Jerry? Any any particular resources? Well, I think that there's some of her articles on the website, but I really like the work of Michelle LeBaron. Yeah. Uh, her focus is on conflict resolution. She's from British Columbia. Okay. But her work is terrific around, you know, she, she approaches conflict resolution from a worldview lens. Mm. And so I like her work. Um, I've been recommending a lot lately just because uh, Kathy and I do a lot of work in Native American communities. And, um, and the, you know, the tensions between Native American and white communities. And so there's a book called Neither Wolf Nor Dog. Um, that's probably the best book I've read around white Native relationships and history and, and trauma and so on. That's a, that's a superb book that I've been recommending lately. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot, I mean, it's just, it's on the website. There's a gazillion great books and things that have, that are out there and, cultural geography and so on. And I think the dissertation's there too, which may be yeah. helpful. There are a few oh, chapters there that are really that. helpful to people. So okay. is there a particular and, and because there's so much information out there, part of the reason I ask is to help sort of curate that and to allow people to focus. So what are maybe two of the chapters that you think would be um, of most use for people to, to start to get to explore this stuff? Oh, good question. So the the first um, the first chapter, first section is about what worldviews are, mm-hmm. and then there's a section about the framework, the Apostle framework, and then there's a section around cultural worldviews. Those are three. You know, there's mm-hmm. a chunk of it is work on um, 
what's an art of hosting worldview. Unless you're in that world, that's probably not as useful. But mm -hmm. the, the chapters on what is a worldview, what's the framework, the apostle framework that we use, it's called, that Kathy described, and that we've further developed. And then there's some comparison between three very different cultural worldviews and a chapter around that. And, and then the very last chapter is sort of around a relational constructionist worship. So the, the foundation of the dissertation is social constructionism. That's the, that's a part of the inter interpretive lens. Okay. The last chapters are sort of relational constructionism and worldview. Mm. So, wow. Yeah, I'm really. But if you're not into art of hosting, don't read that stuff because that's a very <laughs> precise yeah. kind of thing. And I, I would love to talk more about that another time. Um, the final question I have for you is that if you had um, someone who was coming to you with an idea, an initiative, a change project, a book or a business, and they were wanting to get it going but facing some uh, internal and external barriers, what advice would you have for them? You want to go, Kathy? No, you can start. Well, so first off, we yeah, the, the, the first thing I'd really want to know is what's really the nature of the of of what they're coming with, and uh, do a really deep sort of environmental scan. Um, if the issue is that there are a variety of perspectives coming into the circumstance and they are in conflict, then I would really want to do a, um, a much more of a worldview interpretation of the varying perspectives to see where the source of the conflict is. Is it historical? Is it a value-based? Is it a practice-based conflict, if you will? A Chinese company just bought a French company, is is uh, an example. You know, very different kinds of of um, employee practices. Oh. You know, so I'd really want to dive in to find in a, in this structured way. You know, what's the source of the challenges or the opportunities? You know, I mean, so I don't want to just frame this up as challenge. You know, if there are two companies coming together with different perspectives, where's the opportunity to be to create the third more innovative, creative perspective that, mm. that, that they thrive in. So going beyond the common ground and into to what, what may emerge from the, the meeting of these minds, yeah, or world, meeting of the worldviews. Yeah, great. Yeah. Thank you. How about you, Kathy? What would you... Yeah. A, a couple of questions I would ask people, like, what is it that you really want to achieve? Um, because I think people have a surface idea of it, but they haven't really dived into the, the depths of it. Um, and then this question of how attached are you to your own ideas and your own views? Are you really open and receptive to different views coming in? Mm. And one of the things that I think about, especially in areas where we're trying to bring together, I will say, more dominant populations with dominant with populations that might not be so so dominant, is the dominant culture tends to go, "Come on over here. We want to work with you. We've got it all figured out." And, you know, what we talk about is... Add diversity and stir. Right. Mm. Yeah. And so it's like, where's the intersection of worldviews and where is that space? Do we truly want to create the space? And especially if we're the, the dominant part of that, that relationship, do we truly want to create the space for those other voices to come in and, and really be heard? And if we do, then what are our ways of doing that to ensure that there's space for those views to show up without judgment um, and without these preconceived ideas of what it is that we want to do. Fantastic answer. I love that. So um, before we finish, is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners? I would say um, this is hard work. 
you know, the, the framework that we have offered actually provides a really great way for people to organize their thinking and to do the, the reflection work that's necessary. But it is really hard work that challenges us to, to be in an exploration of who we are so that we can bring the best of who we are to the conversations and the relationships that are important to us. And so we really want to be sure that when we dive in, it's work that's worth it um, to us. And then the other thing that I would say is the world is in such a state of chaos, or it seems to be um, these days, that it needs every one of us who's willing to step into this work um, to step into it as, as best we know how, because no one person is going to solve it. We all need to be engaged. If it was easy, we wouldn't need any of this. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. How about you, Jerry? Any final thoughts? I agree very much with what Kathy shared. Um, and for anyone that's sort of thinking about all of this, what we're finding is that this approach is extraordinarily elastic. Um, whether, you know, from big corporations to working in urban school districts to working with, you know, young Native American students at the end of their choices in life to, um, to I mean, we just find um, it um, a valuable and highly elastic approach. So. Great. Thank you both very much for taking the time to be on Tall Poppy today. Well, thank, thank you for you. having me. There's a big theme here around humanity, inviting humanity in ourselves and others. Jerry reminds us that we think with and through our worldview, but rarely about it. I hope this podcast episode has given you opportunity to think about it and what you can do to understand the way you look at the world and be curious about others' worldview. Kathy reminds us that this is hard work and empathy for self is critical for being able to have empathy for others. And that with the world as it is, stepping up into worldview intelligence and improving your worldview literacy can make a big difference. I find this work really exciting and intriguing. And it seems there's a huge potential to increase our understanding and reduce or resolve conflict, improve how we communicate across difference and build a bridge to greater care, connection, a sense of belonging and in a diverse world that appreciates where people's different ideas, beliefs, perspectives, and worldviews come from. There's a few things that stand out here for me, like the implications for racism and the prejudice that we can't see. For anyone wanting to bring more diversity to their work, to understand why our attempts to get more people that aren't like us to join our initiatives don't always work so well. So much of what we do is subconscious. And becoming worldview literate is about bringing what we can't normally see into view, illuminating our blind spots, transforming ignorance into conscious awareness. Another thing that stood out for me was the expectation that we have that information will change people's beliefs quickly. I've seen this a lot, especially in all forms of activism, really. But when we stop and think about what it's taken us to change our own minds about something, it can help us appreciate how futile that expectation is. It dawned me on reflecting in this interview that perhaps what I've been doing is, at least in a cursory way, exploring the leadership worldview of my guests, their beliefs and perspectives, what influenced them, how they see things through the lens of leadership. 
I don't claim to have a definition of leadership. And though I see a lot that's lacking in that realm and have a desire to foster a more human-centered style of leadership, I want to build on what leadership means from a wide range of perspectives and expand our worldview around leadership. What do you think? What are you getting from this podcast? Although the listener survey is now closed, I'm keen for your thoughts. And you can share them with me directly via the email poppy at tathrastreet.com. Or for the benefit of other listeners, you can share it as a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can also um, make a comment directly on the website, tathrastreet.com forward slash podcast. And there you'll find past and future episodes as well. A final note before wrapping up. In episode 26, I spoke with Claire Diaz-Ortiz about her mentor summit and the dates have changed for that. Um, and oh yeah, um, we also talked about her book with Ken Blanchard, One Minute Mentoring. And since then, she's asked me to be part of the summit and it goes live today, the day that this podcast is released. So it's available at no cost for 24 hours. Um, and if you, you can find a link in the show notes. And if you want lifetime access, of course, there's a cost. Claire's interview with me on mutual mentoring is live so Wednesday, the 6th of September, and that's at 7 p.m. on the east coast of the U.S., or Wednesday the, at 4 o'clock if you're in Vancouver on the west coast of North America. And for the Aussie listeners on the east coast, it's Thursday, 9 a.m. on September 5th. So if you're in my newsletter list, you'll already know this. And if you want to get on that list, you can sign up at the website, tathrastreet.com. And I can spell that for you, T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. And you can find out about the next summit I've been asked to be part of. That one is on networking and business relationships. And that's happening in late October with David Burkus from episode 14. And that was a really fun interview as well. So thanks for being part of the Tall Poppy community and being willing to look at your own worldview and how it impacts your leadership at work, in business, and life. This is what creating change in leadership looks like. It's about who we are in the world in the face of what's happening in the world. It's up to all of us, and it starts right here, right now. Have a look at the links in the show notes and learn about your worldview and how you can do something to increase the worldview literacy, creating ripples out into your communities. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the flip side.